all familiar with this present financial crisis from 2008. Most people have heard that this event is unprecedented, except for perhaps the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, this is largely nonsense, except maybe in scope. Uh, due to our limited historical experience, personally, our short historical memories as a society, we simply either don't know or we've forgotten the many financial bubbles and bank bailouts caused mostly by dishonest banking and money all throughout American history. Today is just one more variation on that same old theme, although it's played particularly loudly. So here are the true stories of how freedom in money and banking were lost in America. Now, like the story of taxation we told in the last topic and centralization in other topics, in general in America, the history of money involves this ratcheting effect of tyranny. And like the story of taxation and honest money, uh, an honest money and banking system has rarely existed in the United States. We could be picky about what point we, we start to point at when we start the criticism and and the first acts to blame and all those types of things, but for all practical purposes, it really doesn't matter. The point is that with few exceptions, most influential American banks, uh, number one, have never remained honest. Number two, they've never been forced to be honest by the government system, which is its one job. And number three, they have actually been encouraged and promoted in their dishonesty by the government itself. Okay, this has been especially true when the governments have been a partner uh, or a partaker in the money and banking business. Instead of providing this uh, primary service, which, which civil governments ought to do, that is the enforcement of contracts, the state and federal governments have historically done just the opposite. They've created moral hazard by engaging in fractional reserve banking and inflating the paper supply, or today the digital money supply, time and again. In times when private banks have inflated their banknotes against the amount of hard currency held in reserve, the state should have upheld any lawsuit against that bank for theft by fraud. The bank should have been liable for any losses. But instead, more often than not, the scenario has been allowed to reach a crisis status and then the crisis has been used to justify further fiat currency and or the creation of a central bank, which itself provides fiat currency, and the creation of more paper. And this is often coupled with the government-enforced forbiddance of any redemption of paper for hard currency. So in other words, the government usually refuses to punish the fraudulent banking practice, refuses to uphold contracts between the client and the bank, and instead enforces the exact opposite of the contract, that the people can't redeem their bank or state-issued paper for gold and silver wealth. Now, this has been true of private banks, state banks, all nationally chartered banks, including the Federal Reserve System. Modern discussions of the topic evade the fact because they're politically motivated. Most people read today our modern Republican-Democrat divide, our conservative-liberal divide back into the 19th century with some justification. Uh, but then we choose sides and we try to paint one side or the other uh, with as many warts as possible. Just like modern politics, we, uh, the one who emerges from the, the fight with the least mud on their face is supposed to be the good guy. Well, the problem here is that both guys are covered from head to toe in mud. 
Both sides have historically prostituted themselves to the fraudulent banking system. The colonial banks did it. The Continental Congress did it. The states did it. Hamilton did it. Jefferson did it. Lincoln did it. The Confederate states did it. It didn't matter what sides you were on. The Republican progressives did it in the late 19th century. The Wilsonian liberal progressives did it in the early 20th century. Republicans love the Fed. Democrats love the Fed. Only a handful of politicians historically have opposed the system in general on principle. Andrew Jackson, of course, was one. Uh, he inspired a whole party to oppose fractional reserve banking at one time. And of course, Ron Paul today is another. From very early, the National Congress tried to decree wealth into existence. When it failed, they tried to impose legal tender laws, forcing people by law to accept paper money according to its face value, despite the fact that it was worthless in the economy. And when that failed, the notes eventually sank into oblivion and Congress eventually gave up on it. Speculators buy up all the notes for fractions of a penny on the dollar and try to make a buck somehow. From just that one example, the continental paper dollar, uh, there was one Philadelphia merchant who's not known for much else but writing on this issue. His name was Pelatiah Webster, and he said this, quote, Perhaps this whole transaction affords the most striking proof conceivable of the absurdity of all attempts to fix the value of money by a law or by any other methods of compulsion. When later uh, Congress tried to resolve to forgo even the interest payments on their worthless debt instruments that they'd given out during the war. Uh, the great, very famous minister and statesman John Witherspoon stood up in the assembly and decried what he called the last stab at public credit. A government, he said, without honest money, uh, without honest banking, should not be trusted in any other matter either. And these are his words to that regard, quote, it will be in vain in the future to ask the public to believe any promise we shall make, even when the most clear and explicit grounds of confidence are produced." End quote. This early, very obvious and tragic lesson was immediately ignored, and it's been ignored countless times and again since. How was freedom in money and banking lost? Well, here's a partial list of how it was lost. It was lost with the Bank of North America in 1781, the first central bank. It was lost with the first bank of the United States in 1791. It was lost with the second bank of the United States in 1816. It was lost with Lincoln's national bank uh, system, anyway, in 1861 and forward. It was lost with the Federal Reserve Bank in 1913. It was lost with countless government attempts to manipulate the value of money by decree, whether it was the continental dollar or the uh, uh, greenbacks during the Civil War or Federal Reserve notes today or digital money today or whatever else. It's lost every time a single bank or government agency inflates the money supply by fiat and the government refuses to stop the fraud. It has been lost in modern times as the dollar has lost 96% of its purchasing power since the Federal Reserve took over in 1913. It takes almost $100 in terms of, of that dollar today to buy what $1 would buy in 1913. 
It was lost in every government-enforced refusal of the banks to redeem their paper for gold and silver. 1814, 1837, 1861, 1933, 1971, and the list goes on. It was lost when Roosevelt confiscated the entire nation's gold supply by executive order grabbed it for a government-mandated price of $20.67 uh, an ounce, and then turned right around and began selling it to foreign governments and banks nine months later for $35 an ounce. This executive tyranny was joined by Congress in 1934 with an act. Uh, and so the go government out of this stole the gold and turned around and made a 69% return on it, which it had stole from the, the American people. And the Gold Reserve Act of 1934, by the way, also invalidated many contracts retroactively because they were written in gold, thus illegally creating a virtual ex post facto law. It was lost in 1971 when Nixon unhinged the dollar from the last remaining vestige of a gold exchange standard, refusing the redemption of even international debts for gold coin. That act in 71 floated the dollar completely and the result has been the exponential skyrocketing of the national debt ever since. And if you look at a graph of the national debt, uh, it, it does that. It shows an exponential curve going upward beginning somewhere around roughly in the early 1970s. Need we say more? Is this uh, not enough, uh, just these highlights, to show how honest money and banking have been lost and have been kept lost in American history. Well, uh, for those who desire some more specifics, we can oblige. Obviously, space is not warranted here for a whole history of money and banking in the United States, but we can give some partial highlights that may be illuminating as historical background. Under the first bank of the United States from 1791 to 1811, designed by Alexander Hamilton, the number of paper-issuing banks jumped from 3 to 18. The paper currency supply was immediately inflated. Wholesale prices rose 72% over the space of a mere five years. The Jeffersonians, who ostensibly opposed the process, were even worse when they controlled it. Instead of abolishing the system, which of course would have been much more consistent with their purported views of liberty, and for which we all could have hoped, uh, instead, they subsequently ballooned the number of banks to 117. By the end of the first bank's 20-year charter, roughly four paper dollars were circulating for every dollar of metal in reserve. In other words, what was a dollar simply 20 years prior was now at this time worth 25 cents. Uh, while there was an interim between the first and second banks of the United States, uh, that didn't stop the governments from inflating, federal or state. They were uh, by no means inactive in manipulating the money supply, uh, which means they don't need a central bank to do it. They'll do it anyway. Uh, and in fact, this is where the greatest mistakes were made. The first one was the reaction of these easy money addicts to, uh, uh, to the failure of the immediate recharter of the bank. The second was the decision on the part of the administration to enter and then finance the War of 1812. When the charter of the First Bank was up, Madison was president. He had opposed the First Bank originally on more than one ground, not the least of which was uh, his strict constructionist view of the Constitution. 
A very slight majority in Congress opposed the recharter as well, and, uh, and it didn't pass. But while we may think today that the central bank's purpose was to control the inflationary practices of the state banks and the local banks, it's interesting to see where the political support for rechartering the national bank came from. It overturns this view. Uh, support from state banks, as well as from the subsidized merchants, of course, was quite overwhelming. In fact, Hamilton's own Bank of New York applauded the institution specifically for its bailout potential. And this was a statement it released. It said, it was able in case of any sudden pressure upon the merchants to step forward to their aid in a degree to which the state institutions were unable to do. It was a bailout system. And the bill for recharter nevertheless failed, but this didn't deter the federal government from encouraging more fiat paper. Congress simply turned to the state banks and to the local banks to do it more and more. And in doing so, the government perpetuated and exacerbated what was growing into a regional animosity. New England banks opposed a war with Britain, and in, in addition, they were very conservative on their inflation numbers. They weren't perfect, but they were much more conservative than anyone else. But the government needed inflation to finance its war and to buy arms and supplies, and these were manufactured mostly in the northern states, in New England. So the administration encouraged uh, the proliferation of new government-friendly, fiat-friendly banks throughout the middle and southern and western colonies. These banks, as soon as they were established, inflated wildly in exchange for government debt. The government then took the loans, then took the money, and went to the north and bought manufactured goods with it uh, from, from those manufacturers. Uh, so in this interim period from 1811 to 1815, the number of banks jumped again to 212. And in addition to those 212, there were actually another 35 banks that were unincorporated because of the war measures. Uh, they would have been otherwise illegal according to state laws. Uh, the inflation ratio during this period grew from 4 to 1 to 6 to 1, paper to specie. Uh, but this doesn't really capture the picture. It was really a federal government-driven regional war of newly created banks against the uh, banking system of New England, which actually had a little bit of integrity. The regional results, when you look at them, are quite disturbing. Uh, the inflation ratio in Massachusetts was less than 2 to 1. Rhode Island was about 2.4 to 1. New Hampshire, about 2.7 to 1. In Pennsylvania, however, it had ballooned to over 19 to 1. South Carolina and Virginia both were about at 18 to 1. Uh, so the comparison shows how much the federal government was using new banks in the South and the West and the Middle Colonies as fronts to steal the wealth of its political opposition in the North. The uh, situation was completely unsustainable, uh, of course. And when New England banks went calling upon these other banks that were issuing the paper to redeem it in gold currency, uh, there obviously a massive shakeup was on the horizon. Uh, there was no way these massively inflated banks, new banks at that, counterfeiting this money left and right, could sustain covering the, that paper while it was at 19 to 1. So they, they clearly faced bankruptcy. But never fear. Uh, the government stepped in with a bank bailout. It was by no means the first, but it was certainly one of the most massive at the time uh, bailouts by the government of their pet banks. 
there was, of course, no Federal Reserve at the time. Uh, there was no injection of more fiat currency into the system immediately, but the bailout came in a slightly different form. The federal government and the uh, state governments that were obviously implicated colluded together and passed a law and declared that their banks in their states were no longer required to redeem in specie. So it was that simple. When the fraudulent behavior was exposed, or at least faced exposure, the government protected the fraud and outlawed exposing it at the expense of those who were being defrauded, of course. It was almost exactly the same scenario as the big banks today faced in 2008. The solution, of course, was mildly different, but the result was almost exactly the same. You protect the fraud, you encourage the fraud, and the fraud gets away with it. So in short, one of the most flagrant violations of property rights in American history, uh, the banks were permitted to waive their contractual obligations to pay in specie while they themselves could expand their own loans and their operations and force their own debtors to repay on their loans at business as usual. So it's absolutely unfair system. Now, as I said earlier, instead of enforcing contracts and ending the fraud, the government did just the opposite. And as a result, moral hazard led to more of the same fraudulent behavior. In the very following year, the number of paper issuing banks jumped yet again uh, to about 246, accompanied again by further inflation. Uh, again, during this whole period, wholesale prices jump 35 more percent. This was a government mandated, easy money time, Alan Greenspan style all the way. It lasted until the change of administrations in 1817, uh, but worse than the immediate perturbations in the money supply was the precedent that it set. Economist Murray Rothbard explains it this way. He said, it thus became clear to the banks that in a general crisis, they would not be required to meet the ordinary obligations of contract law or of respect for property rights. So their inflationary expansion was permanently encouraged by this massive failure of government to fulfill its obligation to enforce contracts and defend the rights of property. Now, if this is not fabulously prophetic of our current crisis, nothing is. The banks have been too big to fail since 1814 at least, if not all the way back to 1791. Now, we hear today of an imminent collapse of the entire financial system, and so we have to have this multi-trillion dollar bailout. Uh, but it's been the specially protected fraudulent system of bankers and colluding governments in this nation for over 200 years, and it's happened more than once. Now, I want to iterate definitely that while central banking was the baby of the big financiers and the big government federalists like Alexander Hamilton and uh, Robert Morris, people like that, the alleged freedom-loving Jeffersonians, including James Madison, showed even worse restraint in robbing the people through inflation. And that has to be admitted. Uh, they did so through federal debts, through uh, federal war debts, uh, uh, land sales that were unconstitutional, and they allowed, indeed, encouraged the states to do so as well. And in fact, the Democratic Republicans in 1816 pushed as hard for a second bank as Alexander Hamilton had for a first. And whereas Madison himself had fought against the first bank, he himself nevertheless would sign the new bill 
for the second bank against his own views of stricter construction. Now, why was that? The state and the private banks wanted to maintain their source of easy money, just like the banks do today. And so that's how they viewed the central bank. One of the senators, William Jones of Delaware, despite being a Federalist, opposed the second bank, and his understanding of the subversive purposes that it had still stand today as a valid criticism of all national banking and fractional reserve banking then and ever since. And he says uh, that it was this, quote, ostensibly for the purpose of correcting the diseased state of our paper currency by restraining and curtailing the overissue of bank paper. And yet it came prepared to inflict upon us the same evil, being itself nothing more than simply a paper-making machine. And a paper-making machine it was indeed. Within the first two years of its existence, the bank ballooned its paper money supply to over a 9 to 1 ratio, with specie increasing the total money supply by close to double. In the same period, the number of new banks rose to 338. Uh, in the great bubble boom of this period, the exchange of paper stocks got so complex and voluminous that it led to the creation of both the New York Stock Exchange and set the foundation for the beginnings of large-scale investment banks, although they would really not get going and become a significant feature until after the Civil War. The Monroe administration uh, noticed the banks were simply out of control, and by the time they noticed it, it was simply too late. A second bank of the U.S. was in danger of bankruptcy due to its massive inflation and a lot of fraud under the table type stuff. And so frantically they began to try to contract all that paper and of course the result was a huge contraction in the credit supply, money supply, and there was a pop of this great investment bu bubble. The economy collapsed overnight in the so-called episode of the Panic of 1819. Prices plummeted, banks went bust, businesses went bankrupt, unemployment spiked, uh, rural areas uh, were reduced again to barter status. And at least out of that, finally, honest money reemerged, if only in a very crude and partial way. Whiskey, once again, became money. It was the currency of the time. But the second bank of the U.S. itself survived the spell, and in a, a line that's ominously echoed uh, in the bailouts of today, one of the eyewitnesses at the time said this, quote, the bank was saved and the people were ruined. The second bank also learned nothing from the recession itself. Immediately after 1819, it began inflating again. In 1823, with the ratio of paper already back to four to one, it ramped up the rate of increase. By 1832, the ratio was approaching seven to one, so it's clear that the Central National Bank was neither fiscally sound in itself, nor was it really an improvement upon state and local banks, especially if you're talking about in New England. Now again, many historians and their readers today and their followers think that the purpose of the Central Bank was to rein in these wild local banks and, and state banks who were doing all of this paper inflating and it was a way of reining these guys in and keeping them under control. The opposite was true. The central bank paid lip service to the hard money crowd in that it did promise the redemption of paper and coin, but it really didn't, uh, it didn't really follow through with that. That was the deal on paper, so to speak, no joke intended promise. Uh, in reality, 
before they even passed the bank deal, they had this backroom deal made that was just prior to it. And it created a $6 million injection of government paper to the favored banks in the South and, and, the, and the middle colonies uh, before it decided it would require resumption of payment in species. And in that meeting, in that secret backroom deal, the stodgy New England banks were not invited. Surprise, surprise. In addition to the huge subsidy, the banks pledged mutual support to each other in case of emergency, which of course included the National Bank, and that was a deal that everyone knew would be a favor to the local banks. So it was essentially a bank bailout assurance given up front. Um, it's no wonder that the state and local banks favored the creation of another national bank with things going like that for their favor. Um, and while, again, that goes against the popular story of many historians today, the facts are obvious and they absolutely support it. Uh, indeed, part of Madison's own justification for ignoring his own constitutional scruples involved what he said was, quote, the entire acquiescence of all the local authorities. Of course, that's not entirely true. Not all local authorities acquiesced to his uh, view of things, but his appeal to local authorities shows that a central bank was no obstacle to them in any way whatsoever. They, in fact, profited from having a central bank just as they would have without it. They just had it as one more backstop to their risk. All through the period of the Second Bank of the United States, from 1816 to 1836, the state banks would turn profits. So it's no surprise that when the U.S. bank president, who was a man named Nicholas Biddle, uh, ramped up his campaign, campaign for a, 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 an early recharter in 1832, he complained at how the Jackson administration was throwing out, poisoning the public mind by throwing out, out as he saw it, all this anti-bank propaganda. And in his words, he spoke of, quote, the imaginary injury done to the state banks. And it led him to start a campaign, again in his words, to find, quote, proofs that the state banks are in the main friendly to his institutions. The historian's own analysis of this shows that Biddle was absolutely correct. Among the South and the West, only Georgia had a state bank that opposed having a national bank. Only one place. In New England, of course, the support was understandably minimal, but the uh, middle states largely supported the measure. There were exceptions in New York, of course, especially New York City, but uh, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, they loved it. Uh, Biddle's recharter passed Congress, uh, but it did meet its demise at the desk of Andrew Jackson. Jackson opposed the bank and all fractional reserve banking in principle as a looter of the people and a feeder of the privileged few fraudsters. While the bank would remain in theory to the end of its charter in 1836, Jackson vetoed the 1832 attempt. He then immediately began disemboweling the National Bank by moving all of its assets to several state banks. And this caused a stir up front because it was just a few, but by 1836 uh, he had distributed it to over 91 institutions. Uh, in that year, 1836, the Second Bank lost its, uh, its charter it was uh, devolved into an ordinary bank. Five years after losing its government-enforced monopoly privileges, it went bankrupt in 1841. Uh, meanwhile, Jackson had vetoed nearly every massive spending bill. 
He sold off hordes of federally owned property, increased the revenues of the federal government by that measure, and despite his deficiencies in other areas granted, he was the first and only president to pay off the national debt in its entirety. He was the only president ever to be able to claim, at the end of the day, a true surplus in the U.S. Treasury. This occurred in 1835. It has never happened again. So the second bust of the Bank of the United States, again, uh, however, did not stop state and local banks from inflating paper, although they did maintain a consistent ratio of where they had left off of for several years. Uh, although it's interesting to take a look at how that played out, uh, there was an influx of specie, uh, particularly silver coin coming in from Mexico, and this huge influx of specie with a, with a constant ratio of inflation meant that they had to have been inflating just to, as much to go along with it. And so they were inflating paper constantly as the new specie came in. Uh, so it, it wasn't very long in a slightly later year, disruption in international markets helped precipitate uh, another credit contraction. It's quite complex. And in fact, a lot of historians don't even understand exactly what happened, but the Panic of 1837 resulted. Uh, again, we can say one thing, however, had there been no inflation allowed to begin with, there could not have been a subsequent malinvestment of that artificial money. There would have been no bubble and it would have been very difficult. Uh, there would have been no difficulty, that is, when it came to redeem uh, paper. Credit contraction is simply not an issue in a world where inflation of credit is not allowed to begin with. Now, uh, these are details I haven't even touched on many other issues just in the 19th century. We haven't talked about the other panics, the Panic of 1857. We haven't talked about the, the Greenback demise during the Civil War, which was driven out of existence. We haven't talked about the Panic of 1873, the Recession of 1882, which lasted three years, the Panic again of 1893. In all of these, official coercive attempts by the federal and state governments to uphold fraudulent uh, standards only extenuated social evils and social pain. In a mere three years of the Civil War, Congress created $400 million in greenback currency out of nowhere, backed by nothing. Over the period of the war, the total money supply, including the pre-existing fiat money and state banknotes, was pumped from about 745 billion, or, uh, million uh, to $1.77 billion, which is a 138% uh, increase. And not without irony, by the way, during this time, the original Greenback Act, which was the Legal Tender Act of 1862, specified stiff penalties for anyone who dared counterfeit these greenback notes, up to a $5,000 fine and 15 years of hard labor. You know, we can't have people just running around counterfeiting money after all, willy-nilly now, can we? Uh, that was the, the government's view of the issue. There's only one counterfeiter allowed, and that's the federal government. Uh, we've also barely mentioned the culmination and the behemoth of them all, which is, of course, the Federal Reserve System, uh, birthed from its uh, evil womb in 1913. We've not discussed uh, government attempts to fix the gold uh, exchange ratio and silver, gold to silver ratio, things like that over history. Hamilton did it in 1792. Jackson did it again in 1834. 
uh, plus many other failed exchange rates and, and similar things, FDR in 33 and 34, the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944, and of course Nixon in 1971, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, I've, not also, I've also not put much emphasis on legal tender laws, which are tantamount, of course, to armed robbery. The list is legion because this demon is legion, and it has never been exercised from American life. Okay, the main point here is not to shred through the details. The main point is that the biblical uh, and common sense principles of money and banking have never been followed in this country really from day one. We have not yet had a chance at a free market in money and banking. We have never seen, for the most part, honest money enforced on fraudulent cheating banks and government treasuries. Not only have they not been followed or upheld uh, by the government, but the government, as I've said, has been the most active agent in abusing those principles and in encouraging their abuse by others. Instead, perpetual fraud has been the rule, and government has instigated, encouraged, promoted, and protected the abuse of those principles. Uh, we have no precedent for the pains of what honest liquidation will be like. We have way too much precedent uh, for the public being stiffed and robbed by colluding governments, often by the times voted, uh, voted, voter backed, voted in by themselves, uh, colluding governments and the bankers. It's time this began to change and with a whole generation of people waking up to the fraud inherent in the international banking system uh, as well as our national banking system, the fraud that is the Federal Reserve System, and waking up to the standard of truly sound money and accounting, there is a great hope that things can indeed begin to change at all levels. The questions, of course, will be what exactly needs to be done, what can we do as, as average people, and what are we willing to sacrifice uh, in order to make it happen? And uh, we'll talk about those questions in the third segment. <music>